what will this child be? That's the question most parents have um, from the first moment they discover they're having a baby. Even choosing a name can feel challenging because each name has a thousand different possibilities. You know, do you name them after a family member, hoping they'll have some of those qualities? Do you name them after some of your favorite people in history, hoping they'll live up to that legacy? And after they're born, this continues, right? We continue to dream and wonder, what will this child be? We look at toys that they choose to play with to see if it gives us a hint of their future passion. If they like to sing to themselves, we, we wonder, are they going to grow up and be a singer or a rock star? Calvin loves to do flips all over our house, and now we wonder, oh, is he going to be a gymnast or an acrobat? Even when you have your own grandchildren, right, you still continue to wonder, what are they going to be? Or strangers or the children that run around our church, you look at them and see, man, and just think, what are these kids going to turn out to be? Our passage this morning in Luke chapter 1, it has the birth of another child. Not Jesus this morning, he'll be next week. Today we're talking about John the Baptist. But the central question of this text is, what will this child be? The crowd even gathers around after John is born to wonder, what is he going to be like? And so as we walk through our text this morning in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80, really the end of the chapter, where I want us to ask ourselves this question. And it seems like a strange place to begin the week before Christmas. Um, but Luke wants us, and he believes that in order for us to understand Jesus and Jesus' birth, we also need to understand John, who John will be. Because so much of the first two chapters of Luke, and really the first three or four, bounce between John and Jesus over and over because they parallel each other. They're doing similar things. And so as we look at John the Baptist this morning and his birth, I want us to look at it knowing that what we learn about him is going to help us understand Jesus better too. So if you're able, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to read the, the whole thing, um, because I believe this is the most important thing we do, and I don't think we can read God's Word too much. So starting in Luke 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promise to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, O child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people, 
in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning, that you would illuminate your word, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us to see what John has to teach us about you and about your birth. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, if you'd like to take notes in your bulletin, point number one is that John will be an unusual prophet. John is going to be an unusual prophet. And the key verse for, for this section, again, I think is in verse 66. And he heard them, and lay, all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. Now, what is going to make the crowd wonder and ask this question? Let's back up. If you remember how the book of Luke opens, if you were with us, um, Rob told us that the story of the angel Gabriel, and he comes and he visits Zechariah. And he tells him, Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth, even though she is old and she is beyond the years of having children, she is going to give birth to a son. But unlike Mary, Zechariah didn't believe. And so as a consequence, since that moment, for many months, he has been unable to speak. So now when you go to verse 57, the time has come. Elizabeth is going to give birth and she gives birth to a son. I don't want to read over that too quickly. God kept his promise. He did exactly what the angel said he would do, and this child is born alive and healthy, which would be a shock for many. Verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. I think it seems like they don't know that she was pregnant. It seems like it came as a surprise to them, or if they did know, they were probably nervous about that pregnancy. At her age, that would be quite a risk. Few people would believe, even if she was pregnant, would believe that she would give birth to a healthy child, especially since she had never done it before. But nothing is impossible with God. And they see the mercy that God has shown, and they rejoice. And what a party that must have been. Can you imagine the excitement? I mean, if you picture someone just in our church family that had been trying to have a baby, and despite our prayers, it hadn't happened yet. And then one Sunday, they walked in the doors and had a baby with them. How much joy and excitement and laughter there would be. And so that's what they do. And in verse 59, on the eighth day, they come to circumcise the child. And they would have named him Zachariah after his father. So they've waited eight days to name the baby, which is not unusual. And it seems that everybody already has an opinion, or they have a guess on what this child should be named. Some things never really change, do they? Right? It's usually the first thing you ask somebody when they tell you you're pregnant. Oh, what are you going to name it? And then people tell you, and most people will give their opinion on the name. Right? I've always struggled with this. I don't like telling people the names of our kids before they were born because people tend to give you all sorts of unhelpful opinions. Okay? As if it's any of their business or if it's their child. You can name your own kid. This one's mine. I'm going to name them what I want to. Okay? The crowd has an unhelpful opinion as well. For eight days, they've probably bothered and pestered Elizabeth. What are you going to name him? What are you going to name him? Oh, surely you're going to name him Zechariah, right? You have to name him Zechariah. Obviously, you must name him Zechariah. 
And so the public ceremony comes because this isn't done in private. This is done in the synagogue. And they're all gathering together. And they're getting to hear the name of the child. And they think she'd better name him Zechariah. That's what we've all told him that she should do. It's a family name. Her husband's an important priest. He obviously deserves honor. Look at how God has honored him. God has done this miracle just for him. Verse 60. But his mother answers, no, he shall be called John. Elizabeth says, I'm going to name him what the angel said. His name is John. And the crowd protests. They don't like it. They don't just grumble quietly. They decide to intervene. 61, they say to her, well, none of your relatives is called by this name. Now, John's not an uncommon name. It's probably something they've heard before. But they can't understand. Why wouldn't you choose a family name? And it's not just, I think, that they already like this name. I think the crowd already has expectations for who John is going to be. The crowd has already formulated ideas about his profession. Well, he'll be a priest just like his father. And so the fact that they are naming him John signifies that something is going to be different. He's not going to quite fit the mold that the crowd has for him. In verse 62, so they made signs to his father inquiring, well, what do you want him to be called? There's some kind of patriarchal undertones here. Right? They seem to leave, well, maybe Elizabeth's just taking advantage of poor Zechariah. This must be happening behind his back since he can't talk. Let's ask him to see what he thinks. If you notice, too, they have to make signs. They appear to be using sign language to speak to him. I think Zechariah is not just mute. He also seems to be deaf, more than likely. So 63, he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, writes on it, His name is John. And they all wonder. He gets something to write with, and he gets reply. I can only imagine as they gather around waiting, trying to peek over, what, what's he going to say? I'm sure they all believe, well, he's going to set it straight. He's going to fix his wife and, you know, name him what he should be named. He's going to give him a proper family name. But instead, he says his name is John. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I want to name him John. He declares, no, his name is John. Not just because he's backing up his wife like a good husband, though he is, but because the angels already named him. He is admitting and submitting to what God's will is. It is a statement of faith that, John, that Zechariah makes. When the moment comes, when the crowd is pressuring him to name the child after himself, when it's been months since he saw that angel and he didn't believe when the angel was in front of him, I'm sure he struggled to believe after the angel was gone. But yet he resists all of the temptation and the pressure and he's willing to give up the dreams he probably had for what his son would be. And he submits to God's word. His name is John. And the crowd can't believe it, but what happens in 64 really shocks them. 64, and immediately his mouth is opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard it laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. A miracle occurs. His mouth finally opens and praises come out of it. And fear overcomes them because they realize they have just been in the presence of of a miracle. Something unusual is happening here. And word goes all through the town, the country, and the state. Word not that a barren woman has given birth and a miracle happened to her husband and then they named him something strange. What is going on? It's all a sign. They know God is doing something different, but they don't know yet. But we know. You get the hindsight and the benefit of knowing the story. But you see that God has not sent a prophet in a long, long time. 
This time in Israel's history, right, we often refer to it as 400 years of silence. It's not because God hasn't done anything, but there haven't been any prophets in a while. There's been lots of suffering. There's been persecution. God's been active. There's even been some miracles, but no one has been able to speak for God until now. Because in the same way that Zechariah's silence ends, God's silence is going to end as well because his prophet has been born and named. And John will not be like other prophets because most of the prophets, they don't have extraordinary birth stories. The only prophet I think that comes close that has any kind of special circumstances around their birth is Moses. And he was kind of an important one. Most of the prophets just get chosen later on or seem to just appear. So John is going to be unusual, but how? Well, in order to understand the difference, I think we need to look at some of the older prophets. Point number two, if you're taking notes, is that the old prophets made promises about the Messiah. The old prophets made promises about the Messiah. So part of their work, not all of it, but a good amount of it, was prophesying about who the Savior would be. The kinds of things that the Savior would do. In verse 67, And his father Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies, saying... So just like Elizabeth, back in verse 41, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. And like Mary had a song of praise, so Zechariah has a song of his own. You may have heard it referred to as the, the Benedictus. And this hymn of praise, it has two parts. The first part, 67 to 75, it's all about the previous prophets. It's about the promises that they made about God. And the second half in 66 through 70, or 76 through 79 is about who John will be. So we're looking at the first part here in 68. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So the primary promise of all these prophets was about the Messiah. It's a promise he's going to come and visit us, that he will redeem us, that he will save us. And Zechariah praises God because he knows and he recognizes through the power of the Holy Spirit the promises are at hand. They're almost here. Jesus is going to be born soon. And he knows that his son John has a part to play. See, John isn't the horn of salvation. He is something significant, which is why Zechariah praises God. In verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. He explicitly mentions these prophets because their primary function of a prophet is to be God's mouthpiece. It's to say what God wants to say. It's not to give their own opinion. They shouldn't do that. They should repeat God's words and what God told them to say. And so then Zechariah reminds them of the promises of the prophets in 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. You may notice this song too, kind of like Mary's, it contains a lot of references to the past. Okay, this is because Zechariah, he's using something in the Greek that we call the aorist tense, but to be more accurate, he's using the prophetic aorist. Well, what does that mean? Well, in English, right, we have past, present, future. Greek gets a lot more complicated, and they don't have just a simple past tense. So the aorist is kind of like a general way to talk about an event. And the specific way Zechariah wants you to think about these events is to think about them like a prophet. He wants you to think, because Jesus has not fulfilled all of these promises yet. He's not born yet. That'll be next week. It'll be soon. So the horn of salvation hasn't yet come. He hasn't yet delivered his people. He hasn't yet brought salvation. But it is coming. And God is about to fulfill all of these promises in the person of Jesus. And Zechariah is talking like a prophet who's already seen it come to pass. 
So the first promise in the prophets in verse 71 is that the Messiah is going to save them. He's going to save them from their enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Okay, we know that hasn't happened yet. They would be thinking about the Romans. Zechariah might be thinking about the Romans. They're longing for God to save them, to come and bring justice and judgment against these pagans, those who have blasphemed against God, those who don't follow God's ways, those who follow all kinds of debauchery and evil, those who lead people astray and worship idols. They long for the Messiah to come and to save them from their evil world. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. They also know when the Messiah comes, they're going to need his mercy. Because the Messiah is going to punish the wicked, and they realize that they also have some wickedness too. And that God's mercy is the only thing that will save them. But the good news is that the Messiah promises mercy. Their ancestors have heard that promise and repeated it to them. And over and over, their prophets declare to them, Yes, Israel, you are sinful, but there is mercy for you. And if any sinner would just repent and turn back from your sin, you will find God's mercy. But if not, you'll find His judgment. But the prophets promise the Messiah is going to be merciful in 72. And He will remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us. The prophets promise that the Messiah will remember. And remembrance in Scripture, okay, this isn't just something that happens in God's mind. As if, oh, I have a thought now. Remembrance throughout the Scriptures is about God causing things to happen on earth because of His memory and because of His promise. It is an active, physical working in the world. And the Messiah will remember the covenant. He will remember God's oath to Abraham. In Genesis 15, and he will grant everything that God has promised. Nothing will be left undone. Verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Their hope of deliverance, it's not just for justice. I don't think it's just bloodthirsty. I think it's that they also hope they will finally be able to serve God. To serve God without fear that the Roman government might stand in their way or shut down the temple. Without fear that empires will come and break it again. Without any fear that their faith will be made illegal and they will be killed. Without the fear that they'll have to navigate a culture that demands fealty to their emperor above all. So they want freedom from the nations, but 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, so that we might serve him in holiness and in righteousness. They want to be able to worship God in holiness and righteousness. They want to be a holy nation again, not just a free one. They want to be able to worship without fear of God's judgment. Because throughout their history, prophets told them and warned them, God will punish you if you do not repent. Most of the time they ignored them. They wonder and they hope. And they say, you know, we don't want to have to wonder if we're holy enough anymore. We don't want to have to worry if enough of our people are still righteous or if there's a pocket over there and so God's going to bring the hammer down again. But the promise of the Messiah is that He will make them righteous. He will make them holy. Because they haven't been able to do it on their own at any point. But these prophets, they keep promising that the Messiah will come. And these prophets, they were kind of like their superheroes. They would have grown up hearing the stories of Moses and Elijah and Ezekiel. 
They would know the stories of the Red Sea and the fire that came down from heaven as Elijah defeated all the prophets of Baal. But the prophets are long gone, and the days of those prophets seem over. But they're not over yet because one last prophet has just been born. And he is not just going to remind people of God's promises or the promises of what the Messiah will do. He is going to do something new. So point number three, if you're taking notes, is that the prophet John is going to pave the way for Jesus. The prophet John will pave the way for Jesus. So other prophets, they made promises about the Messiah. They kept saying, he's coming, he's coming. But John is here to actually get them ready now. He says, okay, he's coming, and he's coming here in a couple days. So now it's time to get the house ready, to get your act together. Because John knows the Messiah is already here. He met him in the womb. From John's earliest moments, he's known the Messiah is here. It's time to get ready. 76, and you, child, the child being John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Zechariah turns his attention in this prophetic song to his son. And he prophesies that John will be a prophet. Not a priest like his father. Not a priest like his people. He will be a prophet. The first prophet in a very long time. And he's not just going to be another prophet. He will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's going to be the Messiah's prophet. Because Israel, part of their promises they've been waiting for is they've also been promised that a prophet would come before the Messiah. That Elijah would return and tell them the Messiah is here. That the prophet of the Messiah will come. And Zechariah is saying, he was just born. The prophet of the Most High is here, and his role is to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Because John is going to begin his public ministry before Jesus does. Chronologically, he goes before Jesus. That's why their stories are so intertwined, because he's doing so to pave the way for Christ, so that you can be ready when Jesus comes. And his most significant role here, I think, is to shape their expectations. Because they've all grown up hearing the promises of God. They would know them just as any children in the back would know some common Bible stories. Every child who grew up in Israel would know what the Messiah was going to do. And he's going to keep his promises. But John needs them to know he might not keep them exactly the way that you think. And he's coming to adjust their expectations. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because the main focus for people would be on the physical salvation that the Messiah would bring, or the physical promises. When they hear salvation, okay, they're picturing military victory and deliverance. They're picturing that last Roman soldier leaving their country forever and walking away. Later in Luke, we're going to see that Jesus' own disciples, after Jesus told them time and time and time and time again, they still struggle with what Jesus means when he talks about salvation and deliverance. But John comes to pave their hearts. He wants us to see that the Messiah comes for spiritual salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, physical salvation, that's coming too. But their primary need and our primary need still is a spiritual one. They need to know what Jesus is going to teach them at salvation and that Jesus will teach them of the forgiveness for sins. Jesus is going to have the ability to go to people and say, your sins 
are forgiven. Why? Because he's God. He's not a prophet. He's not a man. Because Jesus came to forgive sinners and to set us free. And also, their Messiah, our Messiah, our Savior, came to die. He's going to get brutally murdered on a cross. Not as a failure. Not as a defeat. Not as a detour on God's plan. But his death will be what every single sacrifice they have ever seen was pointing towards. And they need John to help them get ready. To pave the way for Jesus. In verse 78... This is one of the ones I got stuck on reading this. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of God's tender mercy. Why is there forgiveness for sinners? It ain't because we deserve it. Okay, and it's not because God owes it to us. It's because God is merciful. But His mercy is not cold. His mercy is not out of compulsion or obligation. He doesn't give a deep sigh like I do to my children when they ask me to be kind. And I go, okay. That is not how God shows mercy. God's mercy is tender. And His mercy, it is filled with love and compassion towards sinners like you and me. And if you confess your sins, God will forgive you because He loves you. Not because you said a magic formula and now he has to and you twisted his arm. You won. When God looks at you, he sees someone that he loves. He sees someone that he would die for. Yes, he knows all of your sins. He knows all the darkness in your heart. Yes, he's holy and righteous and not a single sin can be in his presence and no sinner could enter into his home without bursting into flame and dying. So what does our God do? He comes to our place. He condescends and he is born as a baby. To display his tender, loving mercy to us. That's a simple truth. We teach our children these songs. At least I do, right? Simple songs like, Jesus loves me. And then we grow up and we forget. I've often forgotten the greatness of God's love. As I get distracted by other things. Honestly, this is one of my big struggles um, with, with Calvinism and Reformed theology, although I believe both of those things. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry. Um, but I often would hear preachers talk, and preachers I love, talk about the gospel as if God didn't really love us. Or they talked about it like they were afraid. If we talk too much about God's love, you might misunderstand things. So I need to make sure that so they just would preach the gospel as if the most important thing is you understand how much you are awful and horrible, and you're really lucky that God saved you. Now, understanding you're a sinner is a very important part of the gospel. Okay, God can't save anyone who doesn't confess and doesn't admit and know that they are poor in spirit and that they need Him. But it's also important to understand that God loves you. And His love is tender. His love is kind. It's not cold. It's not an obligation. And John is not afraid of God's tender love and mercy. And neither is John afraid to tell sinners that they need to repent. He will be killed for it later. But I don't think we need to be afraid of talking too much about God's love and how much he loves us. And God came and Jesus came to die, not because he had to, not just because it was the plan and he has to keep his promises, but he made all of those promises out of his love 
And God shows his tender love by sending John. And John comes like a set of training wheels to get Israel ready for Jesus. Because the perfect love of God is almost too much to believe. It's too hard to comprehend. There's sometimes it almost feels futile to even try to preach and explain it. It's something you have to just experience. But he uses this beautiful picture of a sunrise that echoes the promises of the prophet Isaiah. Because of the tender love of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, but in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The coming of the Messiah is like a sunrise. And John is like the one who wakes us up so we can be ready for it. He's like an alarm clock that says, hey, the sun's coming. Get up if you want to see it. Now, I don't like waking up for the sunrise. Okay, one, one time when we were in Florida, Brianna woke me up because she wanted to see the sun. And it was her birthday, so we had to wake up super early. Don't remember what time it was. It felt like it was 3 in the morning. I'm sure it was like 6.30. But we drove 30 minutes in the dark to this place called Payne's Prairie to wait for the sunrise. Now, it used to be a lake, but most of the year it seems like it's just a big, wide-open prairie. And I'm sure I don't remember, but I'm almost positive that I grumbled and complained along a lot of the way there. But on that morning, sitting in that prairie across the plain with its grass and its water, we watched as the sun rose. It was the most beautiful sunrises that I've ever seen. As the sun cast out all that darkness, and even the darkness in my own complaining, whiny heart melted. But the coming of Jesus is better than any sunrise you've seen. And the Son of God is coming down to visit you on high, and He comes to bring light. Some of you might feel like you're sitting in darkness, or like everything around us is falling apart. You're struggling, you can't see the way out. Maybe you feel like you're sitting in the shadow of death, waiting for it to come. You can even feel it pulling on you. You see it stalking out of the corner of your eyes, and you wonder, when will it take another person that I love? We can talk about the festive Christmas spirit as if the spirit is just supposed to be about joy and happiness. Okay, I don't know what the world's vision of Christmas is. That's fine. God's vision of Advent and what this time is has a lot of sitting in darkness, sitting in the shadow of death, longing, suffering, and waiting for the sun to come and for Jesus to come and deliver us. And so to you, if you feel like you are sitting in darkness, you are in the right spirit, and I have good news, the sun is shining, and it has come. John comes to get us ready because Jesus is coming, and Jesus will guide our feet. He will shine his light so we don't have to stumble around in the dark and fall over toys or whatever other things are left in our house that we can't see. And he leads us in peace. Not the world's peace, but the peace of God from the Prince of Peace. Verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John grows, and as he gets older, people could tell that the Holy Spirit was with him. They could tell it right away from day eight. But it only became more obvious. And like Jesus will in Luke 4, John heads off into the wilderness before he goes into ministry. And we don't know quite when he goes. Okay, I tried to chase it and figure it out. It seems like since his parents are older, he probably went there after they died. Or he might just leave when he became of age, much like Samuel left his mother Hannah after he was weaned to go serve the temple. But whenever he goes, he stays there 
until it's time for the sun to come. And he emerges to pave the way for Jesus. And so the question I have is, man, has John paved the way for Jesus in your heart? Has the light of Jesus' dawn penetrated you? Maybe you're not a Christian and you feel stuck in darkness. I invite you to come into the light and see God's love and his mercy. Confess your sins and find forgiveness. Maybe you are a Christian and you're overwhelmed by the darkness. Come into the light. Because John came to get us ready for Jesus, and Jesus and the light are here. And we should behold the Son of God, who is our Son and our light. So in summary, where have we been? Well, this morning we've looked, you know, John's going to be an unusual prophet. The old prophets, they made promises about the Messiah, but John is going to come and pave the way for Jesus to get us ready. So this Christmas, I want you to remember John's message, that the light shines in the darkness and that Jesus is here. Step into the light and find forgiveness for all your sins in the tender love and mercy of our God. Would you bow our heads as we invite our worship team to come back up? Lord, I thank you for your love and your mercy. Lord, I thank you that you come to save us. And I thank you that in your mercy, you don't just come, but you send people to help us get ready so that we don't miss you. So that we don't sleep in and miss the dawning of the light. Lord, we thank you for your salvation, your deliverance, and the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for what your birth means, that our salvation has come. Lord, in the midst of everything going on in our lives, in our traveling, in our busyness, in our weariness and our suffering, whatever it is that we are facing, Lord, would your light shine on us? And would we... Enjoy this Advent and Christmas season because of you, because of what you have done and because of what you mean. Shine on us, Lord Jesus. I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Stand as we worship our Savior in song one last time. Just a reminder, if you'll be in town, we will still be meeting next week at 9.30. Um, feel free to, to come in your pajamas or your Christmas outfits. I've been told that I will not be doing that, um, but I tried. Um, we will be having a nursery, but we won't have children's church. And because of that, I'll preach a slightly, well, I'll preach a shorter sermon. Um, but come if you're, if you're able. Hear this benediction um, from the end of June. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Merry Christmas.